Hello and welcome back to Project Next. My name is Finn Blake and I'm using coffee dates to investigate the minds of CEOs, entrepreneurs and world leaders. I am extremely excited to be bringing you unparalleled insight into some of the brightest minds out there. Well, if you're anything like the other consumers that contributed to the 140 million US dollar Australian gin market in 2020, then you'll love today's guest. And if you didn't contribute to this booming market, you'll still love today's guest. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Cam McKenzie, the co-founder of Four Pillars Gin, ex-Olympian and all-round good bloke. In this episode, Cam will give some incredible insight into how he went from running at the 400 meter relay at the 96 Olympics to running one of the most recognizable gin brands on the globe. If you like or hate this episode, let us know on our socials and don't forget to subscribe and tell everyone that you know. Cam McKenzie, the co-founder of Four Pillars Gin Distillery. I'm very excited to have this interview today on Project Next. First reason is because obviously the premise of this podcast is that we meet up for coffee dates, but I couldn't come to the Four Pillars Gin Distillery and not have a cocktail. So thank you so much for sorting out the cocktails for us, Cam. And and I'm really excited to hear a little bit more about how you went from being an Olympic athlete, a runner to founding one of the most famous and recognisable gin companies in the world. So thank you so much for joining me. Mate, Finn, thank you for having me on. And I can assure you, this is our version of coffee. The martini is the greatest coffee in the world. I can see um, why. <laughs> no, terrific to be here. Thanks for, thanks for asking me along. So I do actually want to go right back to the start of your journey and, and find out a little bit more about what made you tick, even as a kid. So you started out, obviously, as a runner. So what made you gravitate towards running as a young kid? Uh, I think it helped. I had four older brothers, so I was running from them a lot of the time. Uh, Look, I don't really know. I think every kid at school has something they're probably known for. Some are good footy players, some are good at maths or English or, you know, whatever. I just happened to be the fastest in 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 the schoolyard, you know, and it was not something I ever intended to pursue it's just something I did right through year 12 I didn't train I would just turn up on a Saturday after a hamburger and uh and run the 100 you know and I would go okay and I wasn't winning all the races I was the fastest at my school Uh, I didn't win the APS sports I think I finished fifth or sixth even I'm not too sure and but I, I think in hindsight probably all of the things I've done over the years you end up there by default a little bit or you slightly by mistake or you make a decision it's that sliding doors moment Um, so I was very very lucky you know when I finished school and started at uni in in hotel management but uh, before before you actually did finish and you were you know at at the peak of your powers in in running and in APS sport and things were you a pretty big dreamer like did you always find that as though it was feasible to go and you know journey off to the olympic games or was that just a big coincidence or completely the opposite i was a dreamer in that i did not pay any attention in classes (laughs) i would look out literal dreamer just thinking i would much rather be fishing it was never running Mm -hmm. because i never trained you know we I, i don't even think we had an athletics coach back then i just used to turn up and run so no quite quite the opposite I know all of my mates who I trained with and a few of the guys who who went to the Olympics with me and and were far greater athletes than me they probably had that pressure on as kids yeah I never got that pressure from my parents I think they were just very happy to see me out 
having a crack at something. What age did you go, okay, I'm good enough to actually make something of this. Maybe I should instill a little bit more competitiveness in myself. What age did that sort of tick in your mind? Early 20s, I started to sort of go, you know what, I can actually stand next to the, certainly the national, most of the national level guys and not disgrace myself if I really go that next step and start training maybe four or five times a week. I reckon I'm half a chance of actually making a, a national final one day and, you know, that sort of progressed. But I was running the 100 and the 200. This was yeah. the other weird thing. It wasn't until I was 25 uh, that I was going to give it away. I'd finish uni. I had attempted to go as far as I can avoiding a real job. Uh, <laughs> still a motto of mine today. <laughs> uh, and my coach said, why don't you just have one season of 400 metre running? And I'd never run them. I hated them. They're a painful event. And a year later, I went to the Olympics. Gladbrook. Along with Michael Joubert behind him, then Paul Green and Cameron McKenzie. Australians this morning. It's, it's a horrible race, and that, that is the key. It's a mental race, and it is a, a sprinter's marathon. You know, If you can run a great 200-metre uh, time, chances are you can probably run a pretty good 400-metre time. And that was my theory was I'm nowhere near as fit as these guys. The last 50, no, I'm being generous, last 100 metres is going to be pretty ugly. But I reckon if I can set it up with enough of a break, they won't chase me down. You know, And that was my theory. And it just put me in a position you know, at the right place at the right time for Olympic selection because it was 96, Atlanta. Mm -hmm. It was the Olympics before Sydney. So they wanted a good, healthy team in Atlanta to build towards Sydney. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I think there's so many athletes far better than me that never made an Olympic team because they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, or they got injured at the wrong time. And there's so much luck involved but I think also the fact that I just didn't have all of that childhood pressure dragging around on my shoulders. I knew it was never going to buy me a house. There was no money in it. In fact, you know, Jason Richardson and I talk about this a bit and Jason's now doing the races on Channel 7 and he won a stall gift and he's a ripper bloke. And Richo and I used to sit there training together saying, can we justify doing this any longer? You know, at some point there's stuff we want to do outside this sport for yeah. me, it was wine. For him, it was you know sports admin and all sorts of things. Can we keep justifying this? And had it not been for the Sydney Olympics, we probably wouldn't have. We probably would have pulled the pin. I, I was actually going to ask you as well. So you're training four or five times a week and you're putting a lot of time and effort into this sport. What was sort of taking up your time when you weren't running and, and doing training and things? Uh, sleep. <laughs> a lot of sleep. Yeah. Uh, I was working at a pub. Uh, most of the time I found myself at uh, the Vaucluse Hotel in Richmond. I worked there for years part-time and loved it, you know. And in a way, that's how I fell into wine. You know, like I said at the start, you get everywhere by default. And much as I'd loved, I'd studied hotel management and I loved the wine and booze components of it. But all I ever wanted to do was run a pub. That was my focus in life. So that was the plan B? That, well, that was the plan. Okay. It wasn't even plan B. The plan was to run a pub, which I've always said was probably a reasonable reflection of my attitude towards study, uh, was the fact that I just wanted to run a pub. So, <laughs> you know, I, I thought that could be good. So I went and worked for, for the, at the Vaucluse for Peter Beretta. But back then you could smoke in pubs too. Mm. And I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. And I was getting home trying to go and train the next day, having passively smoked a pack or two of cigarettes. And I just couldn't do it. I was 
getting all sorts of, you know, head colds and, you know, infections and it became obvious that's what the problem was. So I started working more in the retail side of his business, uh, chatting to winemakers that would come through, uh, buying wine, tasting wine, and I just completely fell in love with wine, uh, which was in a way the beginning of the end of a career in athletics, <laughs> um, but kind of a nice door to open and a road that you knew was there, wasn't going anywhere. So I could kind of justify the next couple of years of training. And so when you were training and you speak of how painful the 400 metre race was and how much you hated it, how was the temptation to just give it all up and go and invest your time in, in being in the um, hospitality industry? Was it something that you often thought about or was it just, okay, I want to give this a good crack and see what happens? No, I wanted to give it a good crack. And, and you know, probably from 20 25 onwards it was almost my profession there was no money in it I wasn't earning any money at all and you know I was scrounging money saving money to go to Grand Prix races around Australia and, and trying to justify it really but you know I was very fortunate then to start you know training with some interesting people after Atlanta uh, I traveled for three or four months around Europe with Kathy Freeman uh, as one of her training partners and it was just an extraordinary experience. You're suddenly meeting, you know, Donovan Bailey, the world record holder in the 100 metres and Linford Christie's walking past at training. And, <laughs> you, you know, you suddenly get a bit addicted to it. So yeah. I know I'm sleeping on a couch somewhere in Shoreditch, but uh, I'm in London and I'm training with some of the best athletes in the world. People would kill to be in this position. So I'm just going to keep it going for as long as I can. And Sydney Olympics is there. I'm probably at the northern end age limit to as a sprinter to to make it I would have been 30 for Sydney but why wouldn't I do it you know if it wasn't in Sydney I probably would have happily pulled the pin after 97 98 they were my best two seasons uh and I would have happily just gone on to to do the next thing mm. but you know I I sort of loved it and but that was also the time that I probably made that hard decision to say okay I need to to start to build that foundation of what this looks like next because I was also training with and seeing a lot of guys who'd done nothing. You know, they'd dropped out of school, hadn't finished year 12, certainly hadn't, didn't have a degree behind them and had no idea what they wanted to do. And I was like, I really don't want to be those people. I want to go on and I've, I've had a, a, a sense of achievement now in something I never thought I would do. What's the next sense of achievement and satisfaction for me? Well, that's something that I really, really want to hone in on because... There are so many people that even I know firsthand that have gone into, you know, footy or running or whatever sport they, they specialise in and they've put all their eggs in one basket and, you know, really worry about the, the issues that they might encounter when they go forward and potentially don't have a plan B because they haven't been able to allocate those resources. So what would the advice be in terms of ma maintaining that balance and making sure that you kind of hedge your bets in terms of where you head in your career? Yeah, look, there's no easier time to study than when you're training, to be honest. You have a lot of downtime and a lot of it is recovery time where, you know, you don't necessarily need to be sleeping, but you don't want to be active. So study is a, is a great option. It takes your mind off the stresses of training. But I also think, you know, people have got to look at, at the horizon, perhaps not as plan B, mm -hmm. but as the next plan A, you know, because you're a long time retired from sport so you can apply yourself brutally in that space 
it's actually healthy to be thinking about what's on the horizon. But you're not going to be able to do it forever. You might, you know, some people are fortunate enough to set themselves up financially forever. But I think most athletes in most pursuits are mentally pretty hungry. They like the challenge. And the ones that go pear-shaped are the ones that finish and are not challenged. So to actually have a challenge, and for me that was going to be the wine industry, uh, that was a, a brilliant little next carrot for me to aim for and it justified the last couple of years of of my athletics I could kind of justify it quite easily what did it look like for you when you were at the Olympics you're about to run a 400 meter um, relay race with some of your best mates what would what did they what were they all doing because you obviously had the wine industry and hospitality and everything what were they sort of channeling their external energy into? That is actually very funny you ask me that because I remember when we left Brisbane uh, to fly to the US for, you know, maybe five or six weeks before the Olympics to sort of do acclimatise to better weather and train in, in North Carolina. Uh, there were two busloads heading from our hotel to Brisbane Airport before we flew out and the second bus a whole heap of us loaded onto the second bus so that we could stop at Department of Social Security and put our last doll form in <laughs> uh, because we were all on the rock and roll because uh, we'd all quit our jobs. And this was, you know, these, some of these guys are now lawyers. Some of them have gone on to do great things in business. But at the time, they were all on the rock and roll, getting paid a few dollars a week. Uh, and we, we very nearly signed a poster for the, uh, the Brisbane DSS department <laughs> as a sponsor uh, to say thanks for your help. And they couldn't understand what was going on. We all walked in in, in our national tracksuit that we travelled in and uh, handed in our last form and walked out and got on the bus and flew to America. So so that was kind of what, what was happening. You know, Paul Green, who was in our relay team, is now a great musician um, and uh, doing a lot of indie stuff and a lot of recording stuff with other musicians um, up north. Mark Ladbrook's a really fantastic coach. He just coached the, um, the national 400-200 champion who should go to the Olympics and he's coaching a lot in rugby and a number of other sports. Uh, and I'm not sure what Mick Joubert is doing. I think he's uh, taken a more holistic approach and, and does sort of massage and that sort of stuff up in the hinterland somewhere. So, um, but at the time, you know, Mark was probably the only one that I would have said, yeah, he'll, he'll stay in the sport. Yep. Everyone, everyone else will probably do something else. And so for your own journey, you finish up, you've done the 1996 Olympics and you are transitioning into the hospitality industry. So tell me about the studies that you did and how you found the transition into getting out of athletics to business. Yeah, probably one of the best things that happened to me uh, in 1998 was I got a stress fracture in my back. Oh. Uh, and in hindsight, again, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I couldn't train for a while. And it was kind of early March. And I thought, well, I really should try and get my hands dirty in this industry now. I've been working in pubs for ages, so I've been getting my yeah. hands dirty there and loving it. But if I really want to learn wine, I need to learn from the ground up. So I literally drove out here to the Yarra and just drove from winery to winery hoping to chat to someone who, you know, might just, I don't know, give me some work experience somewhere in a winery. And I was very, very fortunate to meet Rob Dolan uh, out at Yarra Ridge Winery. And Rob, unbeknownst to me, was a former ruckman for Port Adelaide back in the early 80s. He won a couple of premierships with Port. Uh, his nickname was Sticks. And he's a big, rangy uh, bloke. Well, he's not these days. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Robbo, he's gained a pound or two. Um 
but just one of the world's best blokes. And we sat down and he grabbed a handful of biscuits and made two terrible coffees and we sat there and talked for about three hours, just about nothing really, sport, you know, everything, family, sport, careers. And at the end of it, he said, so uh, do you want a job? And I said, man, I'd love a job, but I've got absolutely no experience in this whatsoever. And he said, terrific. You know, you've learnt no bad habits. We, could, we can just teach you from, from the ground up. So I joined the vintage crew that year for all the fruit coming through uh, and ended up staying in the cellar there for a couple of years and just loved it, absolutely loved it. And do you think that's a sliding doors moment in terms of knocking on Rob's door and going, can I please, you know, you didn't ask for the job, but it kind of came out of networking. Is that something that you think is really important for people coming through that industry and all industries generally? Generally. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to you've got to be a bit brave there, I think, and you've got to knock on a few doors and ask people if they've got contacts in certain areas. People are incredibly generous and incredibly kind, and I think particularly in sport, if you are nudging sort of that level, you become a bit of a novelty for people <laughs> in a way, you know. And Rob, Robbo is still one of my greatest mates. Uh, in fact, we started the, our distillery at the back of his winery. Um, seven years ago so we've stayed connected and even after that connection the number of contacts he's put me in touch with because he is the world's best bloke and he's such a good winemaker and everyone just loves him he's he'll just pick up a phone and make a phone call and next thing you know you're chatting to all of these different people it's so important Mm. you know if you, you you can find your niche uh, and it doesn't matter what it is it's really surprising someone will know someone who can help you along the way and you shouldn't be bashful about it you know you've just got to be humble and say i am new to this and this is who i am i'm not bullshitting anyone i don't know the first thing about crushing grapes or any of the equipment here but geez i'd love to learn what what made you want to learn as well because you obviously had no previous experience and what was what was the appeal of doing winemaking and particularly working with rob and, and coming through that business Oh, look, I think, you know, I came out of a family of food. My mum loved to to cook uh, and I just loved wine and I loved beer. You know, I think working in pubs, I've always had an affinity (laughs) with booze. Uh, But I've always loved it and I've always loved tasting it and aroma and flavour. And uh, so for me, that was the fascination. I always liked the look of vineyards and wineries. You know, it's got quite a romantic image to it, but it's bloody hard work. And you find that out within day one, Mm. how hard that industry is but I'd also been lacking a few weeks of real physical work at training because I was injured and this wasn't something that was going to hurt my back it was such a stupid injury it really only hurt when I sprinted so I could actually be physical again and I was outside you know dragging hoses around and rolling barrels around and climbing over things just work safe would have had a field day (laughs) uh, it was old school stuff and even within the vintage crew Back then, you know, I look at it now of the guys that were just cellar hands like me and they've all gone on to become quite renowned winemakers in their own right, uh, making, you know, world-famous brands and we were, we just clicked as a crew. You end up in 2010 starting to play a little bit with gin. Uh, where did that curiosity come from, the gin? Yeah, Stu Gregor... Uh, who's one of my partners here, and Stu and I have been best mates for 20-odd years. You know, he, he is probably the one who destroyed the athletic career completely uh, in that I, I went to work for him just before the Sydney Olympics. Uh, Foster's owned 
the winery at the time and they heard that I was out there and they said, well, if you're going to make the Sydney Olympics, you can't possibly do all this physical work while you're training. So we're going to give you a cushy marketing job uh-huh. and you're going to go and work with this guy, Stuart Gregor. And I think if you put on a map or, or on a graph the point at which I meet Stu, that's the day my athletic career plummeted <laughs> and my booze career took off. And we just became really great mates and and hung out and, and were quite stupid. But initially we talked about making tonic water uh, because we thought, you know, we could see overseas there was a bit happening in craft distilling and in gin. And we thought, that's really interesting. We'll never get a licence for gin because it's all controlled by the tax office. Uh, and it's very hard to get a licence. Back then it was anyway. So we thought, we'll never get a licence to idiots like us. So tonic water seemed like a good idea. But I couldn't build a soft drink factory. So Why not? Well, I didn't have the wherewithal to do it. I didn't have okay. the funding to do it. Yeah. And I, didn't, uh, I just didn't know how to do it. Uh, it wasn't booze, you know, it didn't have any <laughs> anything about it that was overly interesting. It was just a what we thought was a good business idea. Uh, but also it meant I'd have to make it under contract. Which, so it was a great idea, but I'd be back behind a desk. And the whole idea was I wanted to get my hands dirty. So we just I just went through the Breaking Bad phase, you know. The Breaking Bad phase. My famous Breaking Bad phase was just I bought a little glass lab still, a uh, little three-litre glass still. Yeah. And just started playing with distillation, distillation of vodka with botanicals, which is essentially all gin is. And I bought... Why was it that rather than, uh, you know, a whiskey or, you know, other sort of spirits that aren't white? I I just didn't drink a lot of whiskey. Okay. I tasted stuff, but I didn't drink it. If I had a drink, I'd have a gin and tonic or a martini. And we also, I also kind of, probably at the time, it wasn't something I was thinking much about, but... You know, gin had always been there. Gin, my grandmother drank gin, my mother drank gin. Uh, I stole gin as a 16-year-old, you know. It was the easiest bottle to fill up with water and hope mum wouldn't notice. (laughs) So I'd always kind of had this gin thing going on. Uh, And that was was why. It was as simple as that and just playing with botanicals. And I always thought some of the native botanicals could be kind of interesting. You know, I had to go on a police registry to buy that still. Because it's the same equipment you would essentially buy, apparently, to make crystal meth. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so so you, it really could have been a Breaking Bad face. Could, absolutely. That's why we called it the Breaking Bad <laughs> face. I had the local copper on my door uh, one day. I opened the door and he's standing there and he, he said, Cam. I'm like, Stu, what's, you know, our kids are at school. Yeah. Again. He's looking at this list of lab equipment. <laughs> he's like, mate, I know you've got three daughters, but we've got to find a better way to pay for it than crystal meth. <laughs> It's all good, come in, I'll show you what I'm doing. <laughs> so, you know, it, that was sort of how it started, was just those tiny little distillates playing with juniper and then branching out into other things yep. and for a couple of years before we, we got our act together. And so I've actually got a little bit of a stat here because the Australian gin market has grown to $140 million US dollars per year. So you clearly discovered the art of distilling at the right time back in 2010. There was no real uh, big driver, correct me if I'm wrong, of gin and especially craft gin in Australia. So what, what, was that any sort of coincidence or did you plan that? Oh, it might be more ass than class. I don't know. We, 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 the, one of the great things about wine was we were travelling a lot. So we were going over to the US and the UK and we could see other things starting to get some momentum and one of them was gin and uh 
we had kind of decided to go down that road and we were comfortable to set up something quite small but scalable. And probably halfway down that road, we came across a brand in the UK called Sipsmith, which is a gin I totally admire and great guys, great gin. But they started in a garage uh, in the UK and they had really made some waves in London in particular, in bars in London, and that gave us a bit of confidence that that's a trend that we could see happening here with an Australian distillery. And that's when I was quite terrified. You know, Stu, by this stage, had set up a, a very good sort of PR communications business in Sydney called Liquid Ideas that specialised in food, booze, hospitality, tourism, these sorts of things. And I was quitting a job with a mortgage and three kids uh, and a slightly nervous wife uh, to set up a gin distillery for in, in Australia, which in a wine region in Australia, which just seemed back then probably a bit silly, but kind of felt it was the right thing to do. Why? Well, just no one had done it. Like, not not to the extent we were planning. Uh, so we were just rightly nervous about it. And you should be nervous. It's, you know, it's, it's pre-race jitters. You know, you, yeah. should, you should be nervous. If you're not nervous, well, what's the point? Like, I think, <laughs> I think you've got you to get your adrenaline going. So I sort of insisted that this can't be a folly this had to be a proper business. It's got to have fun to it. It's got to be interesting and different. But I need some security around the fact that I can do this for a couple of years before it falls over. Mm -hmm. uh, so we got Matt Jones in who, Matt had come back from New York. He'd run, he was creative director of a big global creative company called Jack Morton. Uh, he's a bit younger than Stu and I. And he and Stu had some common clients. Matt had come back. He's Welsh, but he'd set up a business here after marrying an Australian girl. And he, uh, I think his clients were like Facebook and Google. You know, so nice. Nice guy to have Not on the bad. Way, to be honest, yeah. And we spent a weekend with him talking about it all and what we wanted to do. And he wrote this beautifully concise document about gin and the opportunity within gin, having just chatted to us and said, I don't suppose you want a third partner. Uh, and that's kind of how the three of us came together. And he just identified a whole lot of really interesting things that had been informally floating around in my mind. But he, he's such a deep thinking guy and he is so strategic that it was lovely to have a guy come in and just pull that together into some really interesting key points. Well, it's interesting that you still remember that document. Is it something that you found was really hard hitting at that time and do you still think about it now? I still think about it most weeks. Uh, it was a pivotal moment in, in our business because if we hadn't done that, chances are we might have made a couple of barrels of whiskey and we might have made an absinthe uh, and we might have done some really interesting but dumb and unfocused things. Whereas Matt said to us, your opportunity is gin. It's a category that hasn't innovated. It has stayed exactly the same as what your grandmother drank right through to probably the late 90s until Bombay Sapphire started to, to put some energy behind it, then Tanqueray 10, and then obviously Hendrix. And I wouldn't be here without those three brands because they changed gin. They took gin back and showed the world it can be different. It doesn't have to be London dry gin. You know, at its best, London dry is, is pine forest pine needle. At its worst, it's pine clean. Uh, and there are great London drives and there's terrible London drives. Uh, those guys started to innovate and they started to say, no, we're not London drives. We're, we're a different style. We still use juniper, the hallmark of gin. And we've got that lovely piney canvas, but we're going to use other interesting things. And they also marketed it 
because prior to that, it was all vodka. Vodka took over the world for 30 or 40 years. Funny branding, interesting coloured bottles, blah, blah, blah. Mate, it's a product that smells like nothing, looks like nothing and tastes like nothing. It's all marketing. Yep. So to see some of the bigger brands put some marketing energy and innovation into gin, but it was by no means maxed out. And Matt pointed out to us, you know, we're part of, we're part of Asia. Australia is part of Asia. What an incredible asset that is for us. So don't become Australiana gin. You know, don't shove crocodile dundee in a bottle. Become modern Australia. What is modern Australia? You know, talk to chefs, talk to winemakers. You know, even I think he even spoke to a couple of artists about what is modern Australia. Don't ignore the spices out of Southeast Asia, but anchor the gins to a couple of key native botanicals here. And, and those were the things that we took out of that document. But to be quite ruthless in our approach to not get distracted into other things and just stay in your lane and and be gin. Was there anything that Matt put in that document that you went, okay, that's actually a really good way of thinking about something that I hadn't considered? Yes, I, look, I think so. I think particularly some of the branding around it. You know, I hadn't given that a huge amount of thought. And one of the things he pointed out was a lot of the branding in vodka and, and gin at the time was quite feminine quite deliberately feminine, uh, and he felt we could have a slightly more masculine brand that didn't upset a more feminine market. Um, so that was probably, again, one of the things that I had never even given that much thought at all. Uh, you know, hadn't, we hadn't even really thought much about a name at this point in time, but he was thinking on so many different levels to Stu and I. You know, he, he balances the more juvenile tendencies of his two partners very well. <laughs> it must drive him insane. But he, yeah, he sets a language around it and he pointed out to me that great businesses, great brands and great products don't happen by luck. There's a lot of work in there. Every presentation we do with our team whether it's internally or whether it's our distribution team or our export partners, starts with the same slide, and that is we're makers, not marketers. And if it hasn't started here in Healesville and it hasn't started with liquid, then it's just not going to get any further. And it's the first slide on every presentation we do and has been for eight years, and it always will be. I know you wanted to be makers, not marketers, but that would have influenced the way that you did market it. So what were the major things that went into um, how you marketed the business and how did you come up with the Four Pillars name and brand? Yeah, look, the name, the name is something Stu and I had used for years. Uh, you know, we, we talked about Four Pillars, loosely speaking, as a foundation. You can build anything on Four Pillars. So, you know, if we were making wine, we might look at, you know, what are our Four Pillars? Is it the the region, the vintage, the variety, the winemaker, the history, what is it? Let's just come up with four pillars as a great starting point. Um, there's a, a, a funnier story that's best told after several Negronis at about 3am <laughs> about the four pillars of humanity and our feeling that there are four different types of people. Um, but when we needed a name, Stu kind of threw four pillars out there and Matt just said, I, you know, I really like that and I think people will understand that because everyone is trying to build that foundation, if you like. Yeah. Uh, so the name was a very simple one. We came up with the name quite easily and Matt really loved it. You know, we, we didn't have any names there that we were particularly worried about. Uh, in fact, I can't even recall another option on the table. I think it was just always 
four pillars. So, so that was really, really good. And I think Matt, you know, Matt just sat down strategically and thought about how we do that. What are our four pillars? And that was our first gin. You know, the 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 botanicals that we're using, the stills that we use from Germany, the water, you know, out of the Upper Yarra here, um, and love, just a love of craft. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a genuine moment for us when I saw the word love because I thought, well, that's what this is built on. It's it's the fact that I love getting my hands dirty again and I want to be able to present something that I've made to someone. And Stu was exactly the same and all of us went, yeah, that's that's, that's it. That's that's it. You know, awesome. that, that just works for us. And so I want to talk about a little bit about the um, distillery you've got here because there are some absolute beasts of engineering in here. Uh, tell me about the stills and how you stumbled across them and what the process is like to get them over to Australia because I've heard the story of how they get from Germany, but yeah. I want to hear it from you. Yeah, look, Stu and I found these stills uh, in, our, in our sort of research trip. <laughs> we, what did the, well, the we, research trip? Yeah, look, the logical place to go to research this was the UK, it was London, only... Everyone in London was making London dry gin and we, we knew we didn't want to make London dry gin. So we decided let's go to North America because their craft distilling scene across the board, across all categories was huge. It was really booming. Uh, not, not so much in gin. It's not a big gin market, but we just noticed that it was really going crazy over there. So we convinced our wives that a trip, he and I should take a trip. <laughs> and drive from Portland, Oregon to Los Angeles, just visiting distilleries for two and a half weeks. And... Not not drinking any of the... Of course not. No, 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 no. <laughs> it was... Honestly, it was two and a half weeks of complete and utter stupidity. <laughs> uh, and it was very funny. We spent some time in Spokane, Washington, with Dry Fly Distillery, uh, who were incredibly generous. And at the time, no one... We didn't have much of a knowledge bank in Australia. You know, there was a few guys in Tassie making whiskey and... We get on really well with them now, but at the time they wouldn't even answer the phone. You know, they wouldn't tell us anything. They wouldn't share knowledge, uh, probably because they were too busy. Yeah, truthfully, you know, they were tiny little teams trying to make whiskey, uh, and no one in the UK would really email us back with anything or answer the phone. So we went to America with a few meetings booked, and they just opened the doors. What do you want to know? You know, spend spend a day with us, spend three hours with us. You know, take photos, everything, and. We walked away from that with a few things. One was we never want to be the dickheads that say no. So I've got an open door policy here. I've, I would, it's rare that a week goes by that someone from another distillery or someone setting up a distillery doesn't come through for a coffee to look at our safety, our stills, our drainage. And we talk a lot. And I've always said, if I've got the answer, I'll give it to you. But if I don't have the answer, I'll give you the question because you might not be asking the right question. You know, we've done it. We need to build that knowledge bank in Australia. But the other thing we found was these stills made in Germany by Christian Karl. And everywhere we went that had a Karl still just seemed to have a purity of spirit that we loved to a point where we almost would taste a spirit and say, is this a Karl still? Wow. Uh, There was something unmistakable about it. Yeah, it was amazing. And we didn't know anything about Karl at all. But we knew we needed to have a Carl still. And how many have you got now? Well, we've now got five Carl stills, three production stills and two pilot stills. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Wilma was our first. Um, named after? Named after my late mother. Uh, the <laughs> it was a perfect name for a still. My, my mother was quite beautiful, as are these stills. And she you know, 
did a power of work. But, mate, she had five sons and she could explode at the drop of a hat, <laughs> which we thought was perfect for a distillery. Uh, and she could put away martinis like no one's business. <laughs> so, uh, so Wilma was the name of our first still. And even that resonated with people. It just resonated with me for some reason. I thought it was a bit self-indulgent, but I loved the idea of it. And I was going to be standing next to it most of the time. So the guys were like, it's brilliant, mate. We love it. Yeah. Terrific. Um, Jude is our, our next still, which is a little bit bigger. That's Stu's mum. And interestingly, our third still is now based up in Sydney at our lab up in Surrey Hills. We've got a bar, Eileen's Bar and, and the Sydney lab up there on Crown Street. And it's a 70-litre pilot still called Eileen, which is named after Matt's mum. Uh, and then uh, on the other side of the production area is Beth, Big Betty, which is a 2,000-litre Carl still. And that's certainly the biggest Carl still in Australia. Uh, Wilma was the first Carl still in Australia. Beth is named after Scotty Gould's mum. Scotty runs our hospitality area. He was our first full-time employee. And we just surprised him at the Christmas party and named it after his mum. So, yeah, it's always mum's. And they're the best stills in the world. You either use a Carl still or you just make up excuses as to why you don't use a Carl still. So, Cam, feel free not to share, but how much does one of these Carl stills set you back? <laughs> Depends on the size. For Beth over there, the 2,000 litre still, by the time you add in a steam boiler and all of the connections and commissioning, you wouldn't get a lot of change out of about 900 Aussie. Uh, 900 to a million depending on depends on copper prices at the time I think but they're worth it you know it's a two-year waiting list to get a Carl still these days and so it seems like it's really easy to make you know some some failures even in you know the distilling process so what did your failures look like in those early times and what did you learn from them oh man we made so many mistakes and I think Everything from dry goods, you know, I tried to use a natural cork at some point and a whole lot of gin went brown, so that was a mistake. Uh, I, I think we, we rushed into export markets too soon. That was a mistake. We sacked a whole heap of export partners because they were just all wrong for us. And, you know, look, we didn't do anything that brought us undone. Yeah. Um, and I think we had the funding behind us from the three of us and a, a merry band of gin investors who put money into the business and they were friends and family that we basically said, this is a racehorse. You know, all we can guarantee is you can have fun, mm -hmm. but we might be pulling the screens around at any moment. We just don't know, but don't put anything in unless you're willing to lose it. Yep. Um, and, but that allowed us the opportunity to take some risks. So I would, I hate to think how many gins I've done that have gone down the drain. Uh, experimental gins. The famous one people talk about is the asparagus gin. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, it was pretty much exactly what <laughs> you would expect. It was, it was pretty bloody horrendous. Uh, but the fact that we could do that and we could have a laugh about it yeah. and we didn't come undone, I, much as I'm sure she hates me saying it, one of the best things we did was we didn't hire a CFO until we were about five years old mm -hmm. because a CFO would have a heart attack at half the things that, that we did here and half the things that we bought I bought a terrible bottling line out of America that, you know, that was a $100,000 mistake yeah. and I still lose sleep over doing it. Uh, but we learnt so much after that big mistake not to rush into things and, and, and we bought the best stills in the world. Why didn't we buy the best bottling line in the world? Yeah. Like, yeah. You can't just have it there. So we, we invested and invested and invested and we don't always, to this day, we don't always get it right, but... I, I think for the most part, we've got the guts to at least have a crack. 
And I feel as though that is one of the foundations or, or pillars, if you yep. like, of what this business is sort of founded upon, having fun and a real sense of community. You've maintained your, your roots in, in the Yarra Valley and Hillsville. And I, I really do love that. And it seems as though it's something that is really important to you. So what lies ahead? Are you going to, you know, continue your growth overseas or, and I know that without even saying you, you're going to keep your roots in, in the Yarra Valley, but um, what lies ahead and, and why have you chosen to make that decision to have those community values? Yeah, oh, look, that's a great question. We, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago. This is the business we always wanted to run. You know, those guys come out, Stu and Matt come out of agency land, uh, so they deal with with clients and often clients can be pretty brutal with their agencies at times, I gather. Uh, I come out of working for other people and some were good and some were not so good. But this was a business where we could create community and, and prioritise people. People is such a major factor of this. We, we have such a low staff turnover here uh, that I'm assuming everyone is enjoying what they're doing. Maybe we're even drunk enough not to ask questions. But, but there's a sense of loyalty around this business from our team that I really love. I love coming to work every day. Uh, it's, you know, I live across the road, so I'm at work every day. Weekend, I come in for a coffee and say good day to a few people I haven't seen during the week. And it's... I, I just think if you're going to spend that much time at work, you've got to enjoy it. So we've built a team here that we just enjoy working with and it's incredibly hospitable and I'm always astounded watching people sit down and do a gin tasting or have a drink here. At They're almost a little bit taken aback that the staff are actually really relaxed and friendly mm. and it's not a wine tasting where someone knows a bit more than you. You know, There's no intimidation in gin. It's fun. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's just hilarious for us. So... We goof off a bit. We probably hired more serious people in the business, which is great, like our CFO. Caroline, I love you, but you're more serious than me. <laughs> uh, so they can be the seriousness while we can keep building our relationships. You know, we're doubling the size of the distillery at the moment. So it's a $6.5 million development next door, uh, which will increase our hospitality space dramatically. We'll keep the existing space, but we'll increase it dramatically with a great sort of cocktail bar area so we can sort of celebrate that that craft of cocktails a more casual deck area for gnts we'll move our packaging and bottling and the stuff i think is not as sexy as the copper stills that'll go next door but there's a big atrium window to look through to that activity which will be great uh we'll rebuild a couple of our export markets uh, you know, duty-free was a big part of this business and that's non-existent at the moment, but we need to rebuild that because it was a really important part of our business. Uh, and then from an export point of view, look, you know, we're going quite well in the UK and the US at the moment. Southeast Asia is quite good. There's, we're, we're investing in people. We've, we've hired some people in those markets to help us build those markets better. And so I just want to pick on that point because I think that there are so many people out there who would want to be coming into a business like that or you know, being even an entrepreneur and seeing the business from the inside so that they can take things away in terms of a business business perspective and embody it into their own um, you know, starting up businesses. What would the advice be from you in terms of attributes that you think are really important to come into a business like this or turn into you know, start up your own business? It's great to take risks at that point in time. Go overseas and well when you can. Go overseas and work. You know, there's so many, so many things in there, but don't be afraid to fail. Like f- failure is awesome. It's bitter at the time. And it's one of my 
if I had a frustration with one of my partners with Stu, and again, he knows this because we talk about it a lot, you know, when we win something, we celebrate it long and hard. We shout it from the rooftops, you know, and then we get on with our job. If something goes wrong, I will lose sleep for a week. I'm scathing on it, on myself, on, and I'll stew over it and mull over it. Stu will move on within an hour. And I keep saying you can't have both. If you're going to celebrate the victories as long and as hard as you are, you actually have to rip apart the defeats and find out how to improve. And then, then and only then, you can move on without ever thinking about it again other than what you've learnt from it. But if you keep sweep, sweeping them all under the carpet, it builds up and it builds up and it builds up and you're not learning from it. So maybe it's just something... <laughs> I don't know that I'm ever going to change him. Maybe I don't want to change him either because I quite enjoy watching the process of it uh, and I enjoy the celebrations. He's in charge of celebrations. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Cam. I really appreciate the time and, and thank you so much for giving us some insight and welcoming us into this beautiful distillery. I really look forward to hearing everyone else's experiences of coming up here because it's such a beautiful part of the world and I would encourage anyone to come up here and, and say good day and come and try out the magnificent cocktails and things that we've been able to enjoy today. So congratulations on founding such an incredible business and I really look forward to continuing to enjoy your gin. Oh, Finn, you're too kind. It's been great having you out here today. Thanks for having me on anytime. Uh, always happy to chat if anyone wants to drop by for a coffee or a, or a martini. Uh, if I'm around, grab me.